Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Progress Podcast. This episode of the podcast is a special treat for anyone who's interested in learning about research or research design. I don't want to scare anyone away, though. Sometimes research can seem really overwhelming or like it's not easy to understand. If you listen to this episode, no matter who you are, I guarantee you will learn some things about research that are useful to you. After the time we have together in this episode, you'll be able to teach others a thing or two about interpreting the results of research. You'll walk away from this episode with a better understanding of some limitations of research and how some aspects of research results should be interpreted cautiously. Today we're going to be talking about some things that are very important when we talk about how to understand research and data. These include participant demographics and how these relate to limitations of, challenges, and bias related to survey and other types of research. I'll share demographics and other characteristics of the progress sample and talk with our guest about why these are important to collect, use in data analysis, and include in interpretation of data. At the end, I'll make sure to sum up what we've talked about and tell you how this information will be useful to those who are accessing or have already had follow or meta. If you're wondering why I'm dedicating a whole podcast episode to this, let me tell you a little bit of why. If you've had fellow or meta, likely you've participated in research, or perhaps your medical history has been included as someone whose information was presented in research papers or at a conference. If you've not had one of these surgeries, but you're interested in learning more about them, understanding research is unfortunately an important thing to do. I say unfortunately because currently it's hard to find accurate information about outcomes of these surgeries outside of research papers. And I personally don't think that the average trans person or any person having any surgery should have to read and understand research or academic papers in order to get the information that they need. But right now, that's the case. And I'd like to help you all be a little bit more informed readers of this type of work. If you've had follower meta, I'm sure you've heard someone say, do your research, or even told someone interested in these surgeries that they should do some research on the topic. This is common because it's hard to find accurate information about outcomes or experiences. For some people, accessing academic journal articles where results are usually published is not possible. And for many people who do access them, they're written in ways that can sometimes seem purposefully hard to read. Today, we'll discuss some content that should support your learning about research and interpreting research results. This way, when you do your research, you can be a more informed reader and hopefully feel more confident about what research results mean for you. Certain aspects of research participant selection or characteristics can make a really big difference in how data should be interpreted and how you should think about the findings. Let's talk about bias in research for a moment. There are several types of bias in research. We don't need to name them all. What I want to share are what to look out for and ways research might not be relevant to the general trans community or generalizable and when it might not be relevant to you. This usually relates to the sample or participants and is called selection or sampling bias. All research is biased in some way, but when we hear the word bias, we assume it is a bad, terrible thing to avoid. Bias is in a lot of ways just part of the human experience. Like two people can look at the same thing and see something different. What's important is recognizing bias, recognizing where it might occur and knowing what to do about it. We should also note that bias and prejudice are not the same thing. People might say this commonly, 
but that's not what I'm talking about. You can think of bias as a skew or a slant, like a lean in one direction or another. So for example, if researchers only ever survey university students, their sample might be younger than the average population, among other things, and this therefore might impact their results. It's important to note that different researchers have differing opinions about many things, even what makes research good or bad, or areas of critique across different disciplines and individuals. So when I share my opinions today, remember they're just mine and others may disagree, and the same thing for anything that Aiden shares. We're joined by one of my research supervisory committee members, Aiden Scheim. And before we get too into things, Aiden, I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself, maybe say how you're connected to the project and anything else that you'd like to say. Sure, thanks for having me, Leo. I'm an assistant professor in epidemiology at Drexel University in Philadelphia in the US. I'm also an adjunct assistant professor in epidemiology and biostatistics at Western University in London, Ontario. I'm from Toronto originally. I'm an epidemiologist who does community-based research in trans health, as well as um, in some other areas, including with people who use drugs. I've been doing community-based participatory research with trans communities for a good 10 or 15 years now. So it's really exciting to be able to support uh, this project, which brings together my interests. And I'm also a trans man myself. Thanks so much, Aiden. It's so lovely to have you here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, and I hope that our audience will benefit from your expertise. Demographics are things like your age, race, income, education level, gender identity, basically characteristics or qualities that define you and may make you unique. If you've taken any survey or participated in any type of research, likely these were asked of you every time. You may wonder why these things are important to collect and research. Aiden, why do you think this is important to discuss for our audience in particular? I think whenever we look at a study, first of all, it's important to understand who was included in the research and who was not. And this is especially important when we have a population like, for example, people who've had bottom surgery for whom we don't have a list of all population members that we can randomly sample from to ensure that we have a representative population. So instead, we need to use approaches like going on social media or going through community networks. And those community networks, as well as the people within those networks who voluntarily choose to respond, might not be as rep that representative of population in general. And so we often want to think about who might be missing. So for example, are, are we not seeing older people in our data? That's one reason we want to think about the demographics of the participants. Then when we actually think about what our results mean or how we analyze our data, we want to think about whether experiences might differ. So for example, does access to surgery or surgical outcomes vary for people based on where they live, based on their um, socioeconomic status, based on their race or ethnicity, which is really, you know, a proxy for racism that people experience in a, in a structurally racist society and other, and other aspects of people's social position. And I do a lot of work that takes an intersectional approach. So I think about how those individual axes of social identity impact people's experiences, but also how they impact people's experiences in combination. 
It sounds like you answered this question already, but is there anything in general that's of concern related to the interpretation of research that might be based on the demographics of a sample? One thing I think is important to consider is when it comes to research with trans populations is that, you know, we're starting to get more data from representative population-wide samples that we can use to try to get a handle on what the demographics of the, the trans population truly are, but we're not really there yet. So one challenge is if we look at a, a sample of trans people that were recruited using what we call convenient sampling, so, you know, by going to community groups, for example, rather than by doing a, a survey where we randomly call people, we might say, oh, it looks like older people are underrepresented. The issue is we don't truly know the age structure of the trans population. and There might be real reasons why the trans population is actually younger than the population overall. And I would say that, you know, there's lots of reasons to think the trans population really is younger than the population overall, partly because it was so much harder for people to come out and be their, live their authentic lives in past generations. And so we might look at a, at a sample and say, it feels like there should be more older people in this sample, but how many older people should there be? What should the actual age distribution be? We don't necessarily know that. And that'll change over time as we start to have more data from nationally representative surveys like the consensus in Canada, for example, but it's still a bit of an open question. In order to demonstrate how to think critically about research based on the demographics of the sample or who participated, we're going to talk about the results of the progress survey and how these are relevant as points of critique, areas of bias, or important when thinking about how research results might apply to you. So Aiden, we have some interesting demographics and other characteristics of our sample to share today. We'll focus on commonly reported aspects like age, race, ethnicity, geographic location, income, education, and sexual orientation, all of which we asked about in our survey for good reasons. These factors are often considered confounders in research. Could you explain what this means to our audience and why it might be important? The simplest way of thinking about confounding is that a confounder is a variable or a factor other than the one we're primarily interested in that could be influencing the results that we see and leading us to draw incorrect conclusions. So I find it really helpful to illustrate confounding through examples that we can all relate to. So there are some great funny examples. So storks and babies. It turns out there is a relationship between the number of storks that are around and the number of babies that are born. But it is not, you might be surprised to hear, that the storks are actually delivering the babies. The confounder in this case is rurality. There are more storks in rural areas, and there are, is a higher birth rate in rural areas. Another example is ice cream and sunburns. There is a statistical relationship between ice cream consumption and sunburns. Eating ice cream does not cause you to get a sunburn. The confounder here is the, the temperature. And so those are some you know silly examples, but it helps you to think about how, if you weren't careful, you might conduct a study and conclude that ice cream causes sunburns. When we think about demographic characteristics, you know, age is a classic example, especially when you're thinking about measuring experiences that people might have had over their lifetimes. The longer you've lived, the more likely you are to have experienced absolutely anything. 
And when we're thinking about health outcomes, a lot of health outcomes are also age-related. And so age is one of those things that we almost always adjust for when we're trying to identify causal relationships because it's so commonly a confounder. But lots of other demographic characteristics can also be confounders. So demographics can impact the way in which we should interpret data, and also whether an individual reading our results should think their research may or may not be related to their experience. You've talked about age. I'll share some demographics from the progress sample. So our sample is relatively young. Most participants were between the ages of 25 and 35, with 12% being between the ages of 18 and 24, and 22% being between the ages of 36 and 50. Most folks are relatively young, and you mentioned how age can confound or impact uh, research. So the common age categories we see in the progress results may reflect time periods in life where people are more likely to access gender-affirming care, for instance, like earlier in their transitions rather than later. Or it might reflect a time when people have the ability to take time off work or school. It could also be that younger people are generally healthier than older people and therefore decide to have surgery. We don't really know. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Aiden, about what makes age an important demographic to collect and how it might confound results? Yeah, I mean, I think about there's two issues here in terms of, you know, age. So one is confounding. But the first thing I think about in relation to this kind of survey where we're, where people are being recruited through community networks is simply the, you know, who finds out about research and who participates, right? So it may be Again, this point I made earlier about how when we see the demographics of a survey, there's always two poss- there's two possibilities, and it's usually a combination of the two. You know, one possibility is that people who are, in this case, people who are getting surgery really are younger. The other possibility is that people who participated in the survey are younger, and that's not reflective of the population of people having surgery, or it might be a combination of both. Like, it's people are probably more likely, people are definitely more likely to have surgery in their 20s or 30s than in their 60s or 70s, right? That is a reality. And it's also a reality that when we're recruiting people on social media, we're more likely to reach younger people regardless of whether we're focusing on surgery or not. So both of those things are probably going on here. And in the context of one study, you know, we can't necessarily determine to which extent it's one explanation versus another. Perfect. Yeah. And I think I'll probably end up repeating all of this at the end. But what's important for the the average trans listener then is that, you know, if you're not in this common age range, and you're looking at results of our research, and trying to discern, you know, will the outcomes that other people experience be related to me or relate to my future experience? Well, it might not reflect you and it might not reflect the experiences you have, for whatever reasons, because we're all unique and different. And the same goes with with race and ethnicity. The majority of our sample was white, so 182 or 84% of our sample said that they were white. That's a lot of white people taking our survey, and only 29 or 13% reported being treated or perceived as a person of color. And so, again, this could be how we recruited people. It could just be who accesses surgery. Is there anything else you'd like to say about race or ethnicity and how that might impact analysis or results? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's similar, similar to the age question that there, there are racial disparities in access to, in access to healthcare in general, and specifically in access to surgeries that can be cost prohibitive, and more accessible for people depending on the kinds of, you know, the kind of health insurance they have access to, and we know that there are 
barriers to research participation and that it's particularly, you know, research that is that is not led by and for, you know, communities of color can have, can, you know, end up with majority white samples because of historical and ongoing racism within health and medical research. So both of those things are probably part of the story here. I do think it's really important that we don't make the mistake of saying, oh, well, you know, a small number of people from a particular group participated in the research and therefore we can't say anything and we'll just put this in the future research should do section. You know, in my research, my research, even if there are smaller numbers of individuals in a particular group, we'll at least try to, in the descriptive analysis, take a look at, does it seem like any of our key outcomes are varying by whether or not someone identifies as a person of color, by age group, by geography, or other any other characteristics where we think that there might be inequities because that at least suggests, okay, there might be an inequity here that we need to take a bigger look at in future research with with larger samples. And those kinds of descriptive data can be really important because once we do more complex analyses where we might just adjust for some of those characteristics, when we adjust for them to answer a specific research question, we are kind of intentionally overlooking differences that might exist between those groups to answer a specific um, research question, but those descriptive data where we just look at how these groups compare to each other can be really important as well. So we were only able to recruit 31 participants from Canada. So in general, our sample of people who are Canadian was quite small, which is not something we were hoping for or anticipating. Um, so the majority of folks were from, were from the U.S. And one thing we did want to do is sort of make a comparison between experiences of folks in Canada who have had follower meta versus those in the United States who have had it. And so your point there, I think, really does ring true in terms of a goal of this project is to take a look descriptively at, you know, what is the experience of having follower meta in Canada versus in the United States. Is there anything else you can think of about like country, state, or province that might be important for our audience to think about? I mean, I think that when we're thinking specifically about, you know, fallow and meta and geography, the challenge is that we really need to think about, and, you know, within the context of a study with a limited number of people probably can't do this, but conceptually, we really need to think about both time and, and place together because policies have changed so much even within jurisdictions over time. You know, when I came into trans community in Ontario in 2004, the situation in terms of what people could get access to surgically, nothing was covered under public health insurance. The situation in Ontario in 2004 probably is similar to, you know, the situation in a lot of um, U.S. states up until more recently. So even within a jurisdiction, it really depends on when people had access surgery. So I think that's important to consider. And, and then even at a given time, how much heterogeneity exists between states. You know, in the U.S. now, there are places that have, you know, in San Francisco, they have a program that provides funding for surgery for low-income trans people. And then there are other places in the U.S. where low-income trans people have a very hard time getting um, surgery covered under Medicaid or Medicare or um, any other kinds of public services. All that is to say, it's very complicated. Canada-US differences, I think, will be interesting. And there, of course, is a lot more to be done in that respect. And sometimes there are things that are, you know, we're talking about a relatively small population. So 
I think there are things that we can infer based on our knowledge of the policy landscape without necessarily being able to use the survey data to to prove them. I think it's a no-brainer that if you live somewhere where there is publicly funded surgery in a universal health insurance system, you're probably going to have better luck getting surgery regardless of your income than if you live somewhere where you have to rely on private insurance. Yeah, that's all really interesting. And when we think about like the overall demographics of our sample, like not just one particular piece, but the income levels of our sample were quite high and the education levels of our sample were quite high too. So taken in combination with all of these things, it could paint a picture that people maybe paid out of pocket for their surgeries, or maybe they didn't go the route of having it like publicly funded, but rather were able to access it differently, like by going to a different country or, um, you know, paying for a certain insurance that was able to to fund their surgeries. Yeah, so we'll talk about education and income, and then we can sort of talk about these overall demographics of our sample should be considered. Education level is sometimes correlated with some aspects of health or well-being, and the education level of our sample was relatively high. So 65 people or 30% either had attended grad school or had a graduate degree, which is quite high compared to the general population. Uh, 40% attended a college or university. Only 13 people or 6% finished high school but did not attend college or university. To me, generally, our sample was quite well-educated compared to both Canadian and the United States general population, which might have to do with the challenges of accessing surgery, like maybe it's easier if you're more well-educated, maybe you have higher income. Is there anything else you'd like to say, or can you speak about why education might be important to consider? Yeah, first of all, I mean, there's obviously a relationship between, um, you know, between education and educational attainment and health literacy, which is really relevant when we're thinking about preparedness for surgery and whether or not the resources that people are provided are are sufficient, you know, to help them feel prepared for surgery and also the resources they have for aftercare afterwards, right? It's a lot easier if you um, both, you know, both income um, and health literacy are helpful in that regard. And then again here, it's the, it's the question of, you know, to what extent does this reflect disparities in who has access to surgery and also to what extent it reflects who is more likely to to volunteer to participate in health research. And again, it's probably a combination of the two. And, you know, sometimes when we see these samples that we suspect are relatively uh, socioeconomically privileged in comparison to the broader population from which they're recruited, it kind of gives us a best case scenario picture. What we find in trans health often is you, even when you have a best case scenario sample, you still see really concerning findings because even trans people who are relatively um, socioeconomically well off will still face a great deal of, of transphobia and barriers to healthcare. Sometimes it's helpful to think, okay, well, if this is what's happening for a group of people who are fairly well educated and high income, we can imagine that there are more concerning barriers to, um, to surgical preparedness or to, to out surgical outcomes for people who don't have those those privileges or those, you know, unearned advantages. Sexual orientation is often asked about in survey research. This is in part wanting to describe the sample and in part because people with different sexual orientations might report different experiences that should be recognized when drawing conclusions from research. So 84% of our sample described their sexual orientation as queer, with lesser amounts identifying as different sexual orientations, such as 37% saying they're straight, 27% saying they're gay, 
24% saying they're bi, and smaller proportions identifying as pansexual or asexual. In your research experience, Aiden, why does sexual orientation matter as something to collect as demographic data, or how might it relate to how you interpret findings? So I might have a somewhat contrarian position on this, but I always ask about sexual orientation in in surveys because, I mean, sometimes I'm often doing work around sexual health and well-being, so it's relevant. In my experience within trans populations, unless we're thinking about things like, you know, risk for HIV or STIs that are about who you're having sex with, sexual orientation doesn't tend to be a great predictor of health outcomes or differences within trans populations. I think the, the impacts of being trans kind of sometimes overwhelm those those kinds of differences, right? If you know, if you're thinking about healthcare access, does I'm I'm a gay trans man myself, like does you know, I think that um, not that I haven't had challenges in healthcare access related to being a gay man, but they're so overshadowed by the healthcare issues related to being trans that I don't know if my I think my experiences would be pretty comparable to um to a to a straight trans man, unless again, unless I'm thinking specifically about my sexual health care needs, which might be different. I think people are often surprised that you you know you collect the data, you compare people, and you don't actually find big differences in relation to um, to sexual orientation. One thing we do know, I think that's pretty clear when you look at more representative samples from you know population wide surveys, is that we definitely see more trans people who identify as queer or as non-heterosexual in community samples than probably truly exist in trans people overall, partly because of who's connected to community. And that's, that's, that explains a lot of what we see in, in these samples. You know, why do we see more people who identify as queer? Why do we see more younger folks? Why do we see more folks who recently transitioned? And it's because we're reaching people who are connected to trans communities which often also means they're connected to, you know, sexual minority or LGB communities. There are a lot of older, straight, trans guys in the world who transitioned many years ago who aren't and not necessarily feel the need to be engaged in community and aren't going to be in the Facebook groups or on the email list. Some of those things are related to each other. I also think it's interesting you bringing up this point of like temporality of like when surgeries are occurring and for a very long time in a lot of places, a lot of surgeons had this like cookie cutter approach to doing surgery and they wouldn't do things like phalloplasty without a vaginectomy. And, you know, that might be something that is occurring more commonly in people who identify as queer or gay who are now accessing surgery who couldn't a long time ago. I know back when I had surgery in 2016, I was one of the first people I knew who had surgery without a vaginectomy. And now like there's a pretty decent amount of people who've had phallo and haven't had UL or who've had fallow and haven't had vaginectomy or the same with meta. And I wonder if that also is related to sexual orientation and people accessing surgery now as opposed to at a different time. This brings me to the point of being active process or not. So when we were collecting data, we got feedback from folks that they were between surgeries or what we call in the community active process. So they were waiting for revisions. They had an additional surgical procedure planned, like an erectile implant or a scrotal implant, something like that. And we originally didn't have a question to like capture that in the survey. So we added one in, but didn't collect a whole lot of information because it was added quite late in the survey time period and late in our data collection. 
So we did a little bit of finagling with data and made a derived variable to try to discern who is active process and who is not. And found that 54% of our sample are currently active process based on our best approximation. So that's a lot of people who are still not quite f- like finished with all of the surgeries that they want to have. And relatedly, the majority of our sample had surgery in the last three years or since 2020. So 124 people or 57% have had surgery that recently. And I can, I can know from my personal experience that there's definitely a difference in the way I feel about my body and the way things have been um, in, in those couple of years right after surgery versus the longer time that I've healed or recovered. And also this different, different time period. This is since COVID we're talking about a lot of these people have had surgery. So this is all really interesting to think about. And to me, this means a lot of people are waiting for revisions or additional stages, and they might not have reached a point in their surgery completion where they could fully, fully report on some longer term changes that may have occurred. This might skew our results or bias them in a couple of ways. Do you have any thoughts about that, Aiden? Yeah, I mean, I think we see this phenomenon with research with trans populations more broadly, right? Because we often, in this case, it's even probably more heightened because th- thinking, for example, to go back to the example of like a Facebook group, if I have had surgery and had, I, I feel like I've had all the surgery I need, I'm probably not going to have much motivation to keep hanging around a surgery group unless I want to give other people advice. Similarly, you know, for trans spaces in general, often people come to those spaces seeking support around transition. And then once they have done whatever they need to do, um, might move on from those spaces. So we're offering capturing people in, in exactly that, you know, active process kind of period. And that's not necessarily, I mean, in some ways, that's the group that also needs the most support and resources, right? People who have self-selected out of those spaces because they've had their needs met are also doing so because they no longer need surgery-related support. In some ways, you know, we're, we're getting the people whose information we most need in order to be able to tailor responses to them. On the other hand, it does make it harder to answer the question of, you know, what happens to people over the long term. And that's some of those people who are in an active process, the question they want the answer to is, what will, I, what will things look like for me in 10 years? Um, but we know it's really challenging to recruit a large number of those people who are looking 10 years back for the reasons I just mentioned. And so I think you know, the best we can do is to be, A, to be, clear about who the population is in the research, be to the extent possible to try to break down those analyses and look, for example, at what does satisfaction with surgery look like for the people who who have additional years of post-surgery experience, and to be cautious and not trying to, not trying to extrapolate the data from one of those groups to, to the other, because their experiences might, might be quite different. And of course, with the, the, with these surgeries, it's even more complicated because also the surgical techniques and outcomes have changed so much over time. So that people who've had surgery longer ago might have different outcomes related also to the, the quality of surgery that they had and not just to how long they've had to adjust to their, to their life post-surgery. One of the things that's really important here and one of the, the points I want to drive home to our listeners is that a lot of people, they, they come to academic research or they, they try to find information on the internet with the goal of answering the question, what will happen for me? 
And that's really, that's what they're looking for. And they may or may not intentionally look at the data and just assume that it will in some way reflect the experience that they're going to have. And I think that's a little bit of the goal of this episode is to get people to think about the reasons or the ways in which those research results won't necessarily uh, relate to their experience or reflect what they're, what, what's going to happen for them in the coming years. Okay, that's such a great point. I think what's really, like, we're in the business here of, you know, population health research. We're asking questions about, on average, what happens to groups of people. So even when we're comparing groups, let's say we're comparing experiences of people who are in their 20s versus in their 30s, that is a group of people in their 20s and 30s, on average, who have, you know, what their average outcome is, what their, let's say, their average level of surgical satisfaction, that cannot then be extrapolated to any given individual who happens to be in their 20s or happens to be in their 30s, because we are all, uh, we are all unique people, and, and your individual, your mileage may vary. You know, I know it's particularly because there's been so little information historically, it's really tempting for people to try to find answers, you know, try to find predictions for their own lives in these kinds of data. But I would caution people to try to suspend that impulse because it's not, at the end of the day, there is no, you know, there is no magic eight ball that's going to tell you what your outcome is going to be. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's it's really challenging because people want to know and they want to have evidence or information about what it's going to be like because that helps them feel prepared ultimately and then they can walk into the experience knowing what they're signing up for, so to speak. Realistically, as you said, we're all unique individuals with various identities and we come into this experience and have it and at the end of the day it is what it is regardless of what rates of complication or other sorts of things might exist in the literature. I think the way we can use this kind of research and the way that you know it is used in general is not to make a guarantee that that you will have a particular outcome but for example to say okay well on average in this sample this kind of support or this kind of preparation was associated with better outcomes after surgery that kind of information can help someone think, okay, maybe that's the kind of support I want to make sure I have before a surgery, not because it'll guarantee me a better outcome, but it may be helpful. And so that's the way that this kind of information is from, from population health research is used in clinical practice as well, right? The results of, even when you, when you test a medication, the results of a clinical trial testing a medication are still about average responses in a group, it is not a guarantee, even if the medication performs really well, there's never a guarantee that a particular patient will benefit. We prescribed the medication because we saw that overall patients benefited, and so the probability is the patient will benefit, but you can't promise the person, you, Leo, will be cured by this treatment. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make, and not to say that, like, no, you shouldn't listen to any research results and not, like, just they're all just trash. But I just wanted to make the point that an individual can't necessarily see themselves um, in the results and expect that what is what is there will reflect will reflect them. But it is absolutely, I agree, important and useful to look at those averages overall and those patterns and what is sort of maybe predictive or related to various experiences like 
having good surgical satisfaction or what helped people feel prepared for surgery. Thanks so much for joining me today, Aiden. This has been a lovely conversation and I hope that those listening are able to walk away with some more information about ways to think about research, about follow and meta and ways to think about research more generally. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to nerd out with you. Amazing. I love the phrase nerd out there. Now that we've had a chance to hear from Aiden and talk about selection bias and talk about the importance of demographics in interpreting research, let's talk about the progress results. We've discussed our demographics, how these are important in interpreting results, and the role these characteristics can play in skewing results. I invite you to take a minute to think about the ways in which the progress results should be interpreted with caution. Here are some of my overall thoughts. We didn't sample a large amount of people from Canada, so our results may not be as applicable in a Canadian context as they are for the United States. We also recruited mostly white people. For people of color looking for data about surgical outcomes, our results may not relate to your experiences. We had a large amount of participants who were active process and had surgery since 2020. Despite this, there are a ton of us who've had surgery before this year. So if you're like me and you had surgery prior to 2020, or you're having surgery in the future, our results may be less likely to reflect your experience. Overall, as Aiden sort of alluded to, everything we talked about today are examples of the reasons why research needs to be interpreted with caution and why results may not be relevant to everyone. This doesn't mean that the averages or the frequencies aren't of interest or aren't important information. Again, just take it with a grain of salt if you're trying to discern what your experience of follow meta will be like. If you're doing your research, if you're reading an academic paper or listening to a news story about follow or meta, how do you know if there might be some type of sampling or selection bias to think critically about when you're reading this research? First, find out who is part of the sample. What might be interesting or unique about them? Think about their age, their ethnicity, their income, education levels. How many people were sampled and from where? Were participants only from one surgical center? Did all of them only have one type of procedure? When did the participants have surgery? The answers to all of these questions tell you a lot about whether those results are generalizable or whether they're relevant to you or people who are not those research participants. It's likely that the participants in research do not represent you. We're all unique individuals with different surgical experiences and outcomes. When seeing research results then, it's important not to assume that what is common among a sample is what will happen for you when you have surgery. When you read an article or someone else shares a quote from something that talks about complication rates or surgical satisfaction, among other things, I hope you think back to what we've shared today and take those research results with some caution, knowing that they may or may not represent your experience, the experience of others, or people who have fallow or meta in the future. All of the demographics that I shared today are available on our website in the form of snap stats. They're under the results section. There you can see pie charts and bar graphs representing the percentages and number of people who have various demographics in our sample. As always, thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode about preparing for phalloplasty and metodioplasty.